it's been a little while, but we are finally back with Title Talk. This is episode four. Uh, we have a lot to talk about considering all that's happened in um, the football world since we've had uh, our last episode. But first things first, be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Entering Titletown. Right now we're running a really cool tournament where we're kind of determining what uh, you guys, what Boston sports fans really uh, deem as the best moment or the best moments in Boston sports. We're really, um, we're cross, um, doing cross matchups between all sports. Um, we have like a rant. We had a seating system before we started it. You're seeing, you know, Larry Bird go up against Jason Veritex fight and stuff like that. So it's really cool to see the um, different generations because we have so many different um, ages following us um, see which uh, moments kind of reign supreme. So definitely give us a follow, uh, participate in that. That'll be going on for the next couple of weeks for sure. We're almost done with round one and then it's, uh, we'll see it narrow down from there, but that's, uh, at entering title town on Instagram. Definitely give us a follow, not only for that, but for news analysis, stuff like that. As always, um, we do the same thing at the beginning of each episode, but we really want you guys to, uh, to check us out on Instagram if you haven't already. Uh, that's all I got for the intro. So let's hop right into uh, today's, um, first segment which uh, is going to be the Patriots I'm sure you guys uh, probably assumed that we we're gonna have a lot of Patriots talk on this episode uh, just because of um, again how much we've missed in the couple weeks since uh, episode three so since we have um, recorded uh, the Patriots have played two preseason games uh, weeks one and two are in the books weeks th- uh, three or we should say week three is up and coming they're playing in Las Vegas I believe it's Friday, but I'm not totally sure. And then after that, it's a bye week, and then it's week one in Miami. So they're not returning to July, I believe, until uh, late September. I think it's week, um, I think it's week four, if I'm not mistaken. I believe they go on the road in Pittsburgh, and then on the road in Baltimore after Miami. Uh, so they've got a bit uh, until they come back home to New England. Uh, obviously, um, it's going to be uh, interesting week one to see how the team pans out. There's a lot of question marks. We don't need to review that again. We obviously know that uh, there seems to be a little bit of confusion in the offense. And um, the preseason games certainly didn't uh, help us out in determining whether the offense is in a better spot than they were, let's say, in early July. Uh, so for week one in the preseason, the Patriots took on the Giants. They ended up dropping that game 23-21. to Obviously, you know, whether you win or lose preseason games, it's really not that big of a deal. But one interesting thing that I caught from game one was uh, – it was a game-winning field goal, and Belichick saved all of his timeouts. So, uh, to me, that kind of indicates that he's just trying to get through the preseason without injuries. Um, if you're really trying to, if you're really worried about your offense, you might uh, maybe want to take that time, even if it's with your second-string guys that were out there for game one. You might want to take that time and get some more reps for um, the rookies and get some more reps for those guys trying to make the cut. But instead, he elected to just eat all of his timeouts and let them kick the game winner and, and you know, Uh, take the team home without um, any injuries so I thought that was pretty interesting it's a little telling how Belichick views the preseason Um, he's really not that worried about winning when you know in reality some fans are um, you know want to see a good product out in the field which you know you can't blame any of us for wanting to see that uh, especially when you buy tickets Um, but before like I said before week one's game uh, it was announced that none of the starters were going to be playing. I think it was the morning of, um, whether it was Mike Reese or, or, I mean, they kind of all collaborated on the same reports that Belichick was going to sit all the starters. Now, you know, that was technically true, but on the defensive side, we saw Malcolm Butler um, play a little bit. He actually forced a fumble in game one. We saw Mac Wilson, who looked fantastic in game one, 
and he also looked great in game two as well. So we did see some of the um, what we would deem everyday players on uh, in game one, but the guys that you know Mac Jones, Kendrick Bourne, um, Devontae Parker, you know Damian Harris from Under a lot of the offense didn't play. Um, and you know I don't really blame Bill for that. It's week one of the preseason. You've still got at that point you were still about a month out from week one uh, of the regular season, and there's just no need to risk any injury. And we saw what happened to Zach Wilson. It was funny, the night um, that the Patriots played, I believe it was that next night, that Friday, Zach Wilson got hurt. Um, and I saw a lot of people ripping Bill Belichick for you know not playing Mac Jones in week one. And then all of a sudden, Zach Wilson gets hurt, and it's kind of a good example of why you don't want to play your starters this early. Now, Wilson's he seemed to have avoided really serious injury. A lot of people thought it was a torn ACL. It looks like it's just a partially torn meniscus, and he should be good, you know, within a month. But you know, the Jets—that's their franchise quarterback, and you know, him taking um, a run in a meaningless game and injuring himself could have cost them the season, and could have cost the franchise a lot more than just one season of football. You know, if if Wilson ever comes back from that, so I was okay with uh, Bill not playing the starters. There was some speculation about whether it was because they weren't prepared, the offense wasn't ready to go out there and perform in front of fans. I I don't really buy that. You know, I don't I don't disagree that the offense, I'm sure, in training camp um, does not look as good as last year. Now, there's a number of reasons for that, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But I'm not going to buy the fact that Bill didn't play his starters in week one of the preseason because he didn't think they were ready. Um, it's a normal occurrence for a coach not to play the starters in week one. Uh, you know, it's not out of the ordinary. It's not Belichick only doing this. A lot of coaches, a lot of, uh, you know, veteran coaches seem to fall into that category of um, resting the starters and not playing them too early on in the season. And not to mention they added an, you know, you add another game on um, to the regular season. It's like, that's that, that kind of sets you back. You need to prepare an extra week. And so it's kind of like you can knock one of these preseason games off and, you know, have the two in the middle player starters for a couple of drives and they can be ready to go week one, um, in Miami. So I didn't have a problem with that. Um, but like I said, we did get to see a lot of the second stringers, a lot of the guys going for, um, or at least trying to get a roster spot before the big cuts happen. Um, you know, the three standouts for me, uh, Wilkerson and Thornton on the offensive end, they looked really good. Uh, Wilkerson, obviously we, you know, know, um, what's happened to him. We'll get into that a little bit later, but he looked really good in week one. I think he, uh, I think he was like six for 99, just barely under a hundred yards for the game. And again, looked, um, has looked good in training camp thus far up until his injury. So I think he's carved out a spot in the you know final roster. He looked good last year, even. And I think his training camp and his, um, week one performance, you know, you know, just solidified his spot. Taquan Thornton, who is also now on the IR, or I should say just injured. I don't think he's been placed on IR, but he is injured. Also looked really good in his first um, real game um, in the NFL. He caught a touchdown pass, uh, I believe it was from Zappi, um, kind of a scrambling play where he had to just get open. He kind of had to bail on his route and just get open, and he, he caught it right on the um, end zone line, and it looked good. Uh, I think he, you know, we drafted him knowing what he was going to be. He's a speed threat. He's a deep threat. But uh, if he can, you know, bulk up a little bit and, you know, become somewhat of a red zone target there's so much room for targets in the red zone right now aside from hunter henry you don't see too many guys um, on this team that you think um, can catch balls in the end zone and so i think you know taekwon thornton there's so much room for him to carve out a role on this team it doesn't just have to be the speed threat you know he can be um, 
anything, you know, that Belichick or Mac Jones needs him to be, I think. And he just has to be able to adapt. And I think that play um, highlighted that his ability to, you know, be able to do whatever the coach or the team needs him to do. And then on the defensive end, Mac Wilson, I mentioned him earlier throughout camp. Uh, he's looked really good too. And I, 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 you know, I said it when that trade happened, you know, Mac Wilson is, uh, he didn't, hasn't had the greatest start to his career. Um, but I, you know, one of the things I think Mac Wilson has is that he's just got really good. He's got really good, um, speed as a linebacker. And I think once he's able to kind of control himself, I think, uh, Zolak said this on his show, you know, once he's able to control his emotions, control his, uh, physical attributes and zero in on what he's good at, um, he's a fantastic player to have. And he plays right into the Patriots, um, you know, linebacker playbook. He's very elusive. He's very, uh, adaptive and, you know, where we're missing guys, um, you know, guys like Kyle Van Noe who didn't return this year. Um, there's a lot of room for, um, you know, those lower tier linebackers, those those guys that we, you know, aren't expecting too much out of in the first season to kind of step up. But I think Mac Wilson can help lead that core. And so, um, you know, it was really good to see him in week one look great. He had a lot of good plays, you know, trying to put pinpoint one or two is nearly impossible because he looked good so, so many times out in the field. Uh, but those three players really were the ones that stood out to me in week one. Uh, week two, I didn't get to catch too much of the game. I did see Mac Jones's pass to Aguilar, which you guys saw on our uh, on our um, page. Uh, that looked like a great uh, throw by Mac. I we haven't seen too many deep throws from him in his career, and Nelson Aguilar also, you know, has not played. Um, extremely well for the Patriots. He had some good years with the Eagles, but um, he kind of came in last year expecting to be possibly the top target, and uh, he was anything but that. So it's nice to see them get a nice connection in Game 2. Uh, the Patriots ended up picking up the win in Game 2 uh, of their preseason 20-10. to 10. Mac played, I believe it was three drives, the last drive resulting in a touchdown. I think it was a scramble. So not exactly what you want to see. Um, now, you know, it's good that Mac made something out of nothing because it seems like he was, uh, you know, getting away from um, the pressure. But at the same time, you'd like to see the team, you know, be able to get open and uh, against second string Panther, or the second string Carolina Panthers, which, you know, they were that that night. They didn't play any of their starters. Um, seeing Mac Jones having to scramble in the end zone is not what you want to see, not only because of what we saw happen to Zach Wilson, but just in general, Mac Jones is in a scrambler. So it's, it, you know, it's not. You hate to you hate to hate on a touchdown, but at the same time, it's not ideal uh, touchdown. Um, it's not it's not what you want to be having happened in the end zone uh, constantly. Mac Jones having to find his own offense without you know help around him. So um, that's kind of the to the extent of what I saw in game two. I don't want to um, you know analyze it too much because I didn't get to um, watch the whole game. But that was the first time we saw the starters out there. And um, at least from the highlights, I saw Mac Jones looked all right. And from what I've read, the real problems are stemming from the offensive line. It seems like when Mac Jones is dropped back in uh, gun formation, the offensive line is able to, uh, you know, withstand the pressure. When he's in the eye form or when he's right under center uh, in, in any play action or anything like that, that seems to be when we struggle. So that's going to be something we have to work on, obviously. And I'm sure Belichick's seen that, uh, you know, if we've seen it, Belichick's seen it. 
but um, that's kind of seems like where the problems are stemming from. The offensive line is a little shaky. It makes Mac Jones shaky. He has to scramble. The uh, you know the the wideouts, the tight ends can't get open as quickly, and it's kind of all a domino effect. So week two didn't uh, you know provide us with too much. Again, you only saw a couple drives from the starters. I don't think preseason gives us too much indication with how well the offense is going. Um, it's really too early to make that determination. And frankly, I think if you're jumping on the side of they look unprepared, it, it's just you're kind of just trying making an assumption at this point. So, uh, you know, the, I've never been a huge fan of preseason. It's obviously football and that's what everyone wants. But, uh, you know, being able to uh, decipher whether an offense is is above average in the league uh, is just not it, you can't do it through two weeks of preseason. So, you know, that's kind of where I'm standing. Um, it was nice to see them out there. It was nice to see some of the guys like little Jordan Humphrey. We didn't really mention him yet, but he uh, was almost guaranteed a, a, to be a cut candidate uh, at the beginning of training camp. And all of a sudden he's now uh, pretty much on the bubble. If not, he's, he's got to be brought on. He's looked great in special teams. He's looked great on the offensive side of the ball. And when you have guys like, Kendrick Bourne, when you have guys like um, Trey Nixon and even um, Nelson Aguilar, who um, you know seem to think that they just have their spots lined, uh, locked up, more so Bourne and Aguilar, not necessarily Trey Nixon, more so on the bubble, but you know Bourne and Aguilar, these veteran guys that seem to think they maybe just have their spot, spots locked up. Bourne has had a very poor training camp, and Aguilar didn't perform too well last year. So is there a... Um, Maybe a look towards Jordan Humphrey as being a replacement for one of those two. There's discussion about a Kendrick Bourne trade. Do you try to open up a wideout spot and gain some advantage in another part of the field to let um, Humphrey in? We'll see. But it's certainly a great development to see some of these younger wide receivers, um, you know, really uh, try and uh, push their way into the roster, uh, the the final roster for for the regular season when none of us really assumed they were going to make the team. So that's the nice, you know, little recap of the preseason. Uh, again, there's there's just so much that we don't know yet, and you're not going to know until week one of the regular season. So, we, you know, to reiterate the same points uh, is a little bit old. Um, we're going to get into a little bit later in the show um, uh, the coaching carousel that's going on about, you know, who's coaching the offense, who's calling the plays, who's the final play caller, yada, yada, yada. We'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but we've got a quick uh, break ahead. And then we're going to get into, um, a third round pick, a former third round pick getting waved out of nowhere. Another wasted draft pick by the Patriots. Uh, we'll get into that next, uh, right after the break. Former third round pick Dalton Keene has been waived by the New England Patriots that according to ESPN's field Yates, um, teams have to get down to 80 players by Tuesday, um, the 23rd and, uh, Dalton Keene just was, uh, sitting in a very crowded tight end um, depth chart. And so I wouldn't say that the move was, um, wasn't was warranted. I think if everyone looks at the roster and looks at, um, you know, our needs and um, what we, you know, lack in depth, you know, for example, both the injuries we had from Malcolm Butler and Juwan Williams uh, really strap us in the secondary. So, uh, you know, we need extra help there. And so at a spot like tight end where you've got, Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith, who, if they both stay healthy, will be your top two tight ends without a doubt, uh, along with Devin Asiasi, who you uh, actually took in that same round as Dalton Keene uh, back in uh, 2020. Um, you know, there just wasn't much room for for Keene here. Um, he, you know, he really never got going. Um, 
Asiasi has been involved here and there, but that was uh, an extremely weird selection when when it happened um, in that third round where we ended up taking two tight ends within, I think, of like 20 picks of each other. Um, everyone questioned it. Everyone wasn't really sure what the what the um, objective was. A lot of people pointed to maybe trying to mimic, um, you know, Gronk and you know who uh, back in the day and you know, obviously that ended up never happening. Never. I'm not even sure either of them saw the field together um, at any point in the regular season. And so, um, yeah, it, it, you know, it does suck. It's a third round pick and yet another third round pick that we take that is just completely wasted. Um, th- you know, was he ever really given the chance? I'm not really sure. He was, you know, hit with injuries a lot during his time here. But it just it just goes back to the fact where it's like there's there were so many of their options out there to take. And I think when you go double when you double dip and tight end in the same round, you really handcuff yourself to having to play those guys. And it doesn't look very good from a fan's perspective when you see two tight ends, two skill positions taken in, in the third round, where there's a lot of talent in the third round. If you look back in the NFL history, there is a ton of players that come out of the third round that become Hall of Fame, um, all pro caliber players. So when you take two skill positions, one from Asiasi coming from UCLA, which is a very prominent school, you know, not necessarily top of the cream of the crop in the college football game, but they've had a ton of talent come out of their school. And, um, Dalton Keene, who's coming out of Virginia Tech, he's kind of the same, you know, uh, thing. Both of them, you know, got a lot of media attention. Both of them, uh, you know, they weren't these weren't hidden talents. People knew about them. So when you take when you take both of them in the same round, and then you know Devin Asiasi hasn't really seen the field much at all, and you um, have Hunter Henry and Johnny Smith signed above him, and now you see Dalton Keene waived as a result of roster cuts. You know, it, it really. Uh, hinders Belichick's draft history even more and you know you can only defend Belichick to just to, to an extent I think he does get too much um, hate for for what he's given us in 20 years but one thing's for sure his draft record continues to get worse um, it's this offseason started with the tr- the trade of Nikhil Harry for a seventh round pick that's a former first round pick for a future seventh and now you wave Dalton Keene who was a former third round pick for nothing um Again, it continues. Um, it, there's not much else, much else to say. Uh, is he going to be missed? Not really, because we haven't really seen him out on the field, and we've got plenty of uh, tight ends capable of playing um, football. But it's more just so if you if you continue down this path, which we have of just poor drafting, poor um, decisions on draft day, uh, it's going to bite you in the future. And you know, here's a prime example of when you could have had. Um, you know, so, someone to help out your secondary, you know, the, one of the players that was drafted right after Dalton Keene was Gabriel Davis of the Buffalo Bills. You know, Gabe Davis is now um, inching closer and closer to um, a star wide receiver in the league. If you, you know, watch any of the playoffs last year, you know what I'm talking about. He's looked really good in the preseason and training camp. Um, you could have had someone like that when you're so thin at wide receiver, but instead you draft Dalton Keene, uh, you doubled up a tight end, and now uh, you're left with just one of those picks uh, from just two years ago. Not a good look at all for Bill Belichick. As if the offensive issues that we've seen in training camp um, weren't bad enough, uh, the Patriots got hit very hard with the injury bug over the past week or so, losing three key players for at least the next, uh, well, I should say two of them for the entire season, one of them for at least the next eight weeks. Um, Malcolm Butler and Juwan Williams both 
Uh, we're going to be key members of the secondary. Um, you know, there were talks about whether Butler was going to make the final roster. Um, I think ultimately he would have just because he's got the veteran um, leadership that a young secondary needs with, you know, who, who we're going to have out in the field come week one. Um, and they were both going to have roles and they were both going to help the team out. Um, hope to help the defense figure it out early on at least. And uh, they're both out. They're both done for the season. Uh, both of them sustaining injuries. Um in both placed on IR, and if that wasn't uh, bad enough, just a couple days later, um, we get told that Tyquan Thornton has a collarbone injury, and at first, there was no timetable for the return. It was um, simply that he was going to be out a few weeks. My understanding of it at the beginning was that um, they were just not going to play him in preseason week three, and um, after that, you're two weeks out of the NFL season. Give him that time off, you know, maybe run him through some drills and training camp in, um, or I should just say, you know, in general, because camp is over. But, uh, you know, le- let him work a little bit off the field um, or, or off the radar and he'll be ready for week one. Well, I was very wrong. And as were a lot of other um, Patriots fans, because um, Mike Giardi, uh, gave us a report just, uh, I don't know if I want to say 24 hours later after that was first announced, maybe even less than that, that Tyquan Thornton actually sustained a fracture in his collarbone and he would be out an estimated eight weeks. Um, if you do any sort of internet research on uh, fractured collarbones, that checks out. Um, they uh, Ideally, he returns uh, week seven against the Bears. That would set him out about eight weeks. Um a lot of timetables, you know, put the six to eight weeks to heal. That's kind of the marker. But you're talking about an NFL wide receiver who has to be able to withstand some hits um, whenever he catches the ball. And I would say if you're going to try to push him to return after six weeks, uh, you better make sure he's ready, especially as a rookie, especially as someone who isn't necessarily as bulked up as some NFL wide receivers are. Um, you know, you worry about re-injury and you cannot re-injure um, one of your uh, draft picks from this past season because they're trying to push him to uh, play whatever game it is. I don't know if it's the Jets or whoever played before the Bears. There's not some make-or-break game in the middle of the season that you need him back. So uh, I lean towards more that, that eight-week mark. Um, and even that, uh, you need an additional couple of weeks to return to full strength. So I don't know when we're going to see Tyquan Thornton again. You know, to me, there's still the possibility that they end up shutting him down for the season. Um, you know, I know that would suck because we, he's been such a good, um, talent so far in training camp in the preseason, but it just seems very Belichick to not want to risk playing his draft pick this season, uh, and risk re-injury and risk, you know, losing another, um, mid draft pick to injury and, uh, losing him to nothing eventually. So, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to have to wait and see and see the updates that they give us, but at a minimum, you're not going to see this guy until mid season. Um, it sucks. It's unfortunate. Um, you know, the wide receiver core is, you know, very, uh, thin as it is with Kendrick Bourne, like we mentioned earlier, not looking particularly great in training camp. Nelson Aguilar struggles from last year. If they continue to this year, uh, you're really left with Devontae Parker, um, likely uh, Wilkerson and uh, Humphrey to compliment him. And at that point, um, you know, our, our, that talent looks about as bad as it did a couple of years ago with Cam Newton. And uh, that's not what you want for Mac Jones' sophomore season. So the injury bug hits us early on. It hits the defense really hard in the secondary. It hits the offense, honestly, just as hard with the piece we lost in Tyquan Thornton. Um, but 
it, it, you know, you're gonna have to find a way to push through it. We've had injuries in the past. We've been able to push through, you know, uh, prior to to this situation and I'm sure Belichick will find uh, a way to uh, get over that hump. Uh, Speaking of Belichick, when we get back, uh, we're going to discuss this whole coaching situation. Uh, We actually had a a question from one of you submitted uh, for us to talk about, um, you know, Belichick, Patricia and Joe Judge, kind of the three musketeers right now. No one knows. I should say the three stooges, maybe Uh, no one knows who's doing what and they don't want to tell anyone who's doing what. So we're going to talk about that next uh, when we get back from this short break. So there's no question that uh, the Patriots coaching staff right now uh, is just an absolute mess. Obviously, the guy who is running the entire system is Bill Belichick. But after that, it gets extremely murky and no one's really sure what's going on in the offensive end. Um, There's zero clarity around who the coordinator is at this point. Um, in the preseason games, we've seen both Matt Patricia and Joe Judge calling plays, particularly in week one. We saw both of them relaying the plays to Mac Jones. Um, and so my my first thought with that was that both of them are getting an opportunity to see who, who does better, frankly. Uh, sorry, not relaying the play, plays to Mac Jones in week one. Mac Jones didn't play in week one, but to Zappi and uh, Brian Hoyer. Um, they were splitting that time. And so I thought, you know, okay, so that indicates to me they're going to be kind of making the determination throughout preseason who deserves the spot. And um, come week two, Matt Patricia is the only one calling or relaying the plays to Mac Jones. So my first thought was, okay, so the Matt Patricia looks like he won it. Joe Judge is going to be thrown into whatever role Belichick wants him to be in. It's settled. We finally figured it out. That's that. Um, Except uh, Bill Belichick uh, in um, one of the media press conferences that he had, um, said that uh, Matt Patricia was relaying the plays to Mac Jones um, and the quarterback the quarterbacks in week two. He was doing all of the, the relaying. However, the determining of plays, Belichick said, is, quote, still a whole nother process. So what has Belichick done now? He's now split. So he started with this this one chunk of the, the process that I don't want to talk about is how the plays are getting relayed to the quarterback and um, how they're getting relayed and how they're getting created, how they're getting decided, is one whole process. Now, it became too obvious that Matt Patricia was calling the plays. Obviously, if you just watch the game, you can see it's only Matt Patricia relaying that information to the quarterback. So the media figures that out. They confront Belichick about it. Now Belichick's saying, well, there's a separate you know, background process that I don't want to talk about right now. So you can see what Belichick's doing. He doesn't want to reveal um, anything that's going on on the offensive side of the ball. And, um, you know, he's kind of done this in the past with his little secretive plays. He, he's always been kind of stuck up to the media. We know that. Um, and that's kind of how um, he's always been. But he, he does love that surprise element. And whether he's surprising the other team or he's surprising his own fan base, I don't think he really cares. Um, come week one, we'll all be able to probably determine who's really calling the plays. Uh, but maybe not, because we all thought Matt Patricia was in week two of the preseason. Come to find out, Belichick saying that uh, all that behind-the-scenes stuff um, is happening without us knowing, and that we're, we still really don't know who's calling the, those plays. Um, but the idea that uh, Belichick is really confused about what to do—I don't think that's true. I, I really do think Belichick knows what he's doing. I think he doesn't—he he values that surprise element so much. Now, whether it works or not, I'm not really sure. But 
you know, he's done it for most of his career and in most of his career, he's won. So, you know, is it correlation without causation? I don't know, but it really doesn't matter because if Belichick thinks it works, he's going to continue to do it. And, you know, it doesn't really matter to me that much. I just care that the offense looks decent. So if come week one, we see an absolutely abysmal performance, then that's where you jump on Belichick. And that's where you jump on uh, Patricia and judge and say, what have you guys been doing for the past three, four, five months, whatever you want to say um, to get this offense, right? Cause it looks like a mess. But for now um, I think it's more so that the Patriots uh, that Patricia and judge um are still in the mix for um, play calling on the offensive side. And, you know, one thing I did see that was talked about a lot on social media in the Boston media was that Matt Patricia has had a history of being very good on the defensive end. We know this. He was, you know, with New England prior to his departure to Detroit, and he was extremely good on the defensive end. That's really why he got that coaching job. Um, And, you know, if he can decipher defenses better than a regular offensive coordinator, can he provide a little bit extra on the offensive side? Um, that's, you know, a valid point, I, I think. I've never heard – I hadn't heard that before a couple of days ago, but it really is a valid point. I think Patricia brings a different element. Uh, he's one he, He's one of the better off defensive coordinators we've seen in the league over the past decade or so. And so does his knowledge on defense help you um, with creating uh, this new and improved, uh, you know, so to say, uh, offense? And with Mac Jones, um, you know, it, we don't know. We're going to have to wait again. A lot of it's a waiting game. You're going to have to wait till week one. But I don't think it's the latter of Patricia and Judge both have no idea what they're doing. And Belichick can't make a determination about who the offensive coordinator is. If that's actually true and neither of them have been able to win the job and both of them are frankly just losing it, uh, this team's in trouble. It, it, there's no doubt about it. You would you theoretically don't have an offensive coordinator about three weeks before week one. I don't think that's the case. I know people are going to disagree with me. Let me know what you think on our page. Um, and, you know, again, we're going to have to just wait and see for week one. I think personally Bill's going to be calling the plays come week one. I think he's going to be calling the plays for most of the season. I think he ultimately is the decider in what goes on in the offensive end. And Patricia and Joe Judge are just there for some extra um, minds to help Belichick in a pinch, maybe. Um, one thing just to note, uh, we saw in um, uh, two-minute drills in the, in those kinds of scenarios in training camp when they're kind of rushing the, the ball, Belichick looked to be calling the plays. So it might be that as well where you see Patricia and Judge kind of uh, trading off uh, during the game, and then when it comes down to the quick calls, the quick decisions, Belichick might take over. Is that a winning formula? I don't know. But in my opinion, you're going to see Belichick out calling plays um, far more often than we've seen in previous years. And Matt Patricia and Joe Judge are both going to take a back seat. But I don't think it's I think it's been blown out of proportion a little bit. I don't think they're in as much trouble as people uh, think they're in. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. We're going to move on to some Celtics discussion and we're going to bring up their uh, huge acquisition of this past offseason, Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, he hasn't been talked about nearly as much as I think he should have. And we'll uh, we'll discuss whether him or Marcus Smart is going to be that starting point guard come opening night. So when the Celtics made the move to acquire Malcolm Brogdon in what I would call the offseason move, um, or the move of the offseason, I should say, uh, the first thing that um, everyone pointed to was we already have a point guard, and that's Marcus Smart, and he just helped us. Uh, he just helped this team 
to the NBA Finals. And that's 100% true. Now, there was another side of people that were saying, look, Marcus Smart um, is a great defender, without a doubt. He can be a fantastic playmaker when he wants to be, but he just simply can't control himself in crunch time. And has it lost us games in the past? Absolutely. Um, does he take bad shots? Yes, I think a lot of players do, but does he take you know uh, more bad shots than normal? Um, sure. I, I mean, you, you can make the you can make the um, or support the accusation that Marcus Smart on the offensive end can be a liability more often than not. Um, however, when you're just when you're talking about next season, and this was the question that got brought up, who is going to be starting a point guard come opening night? Is it going to be Malcolm Brogdon or is it going to be Marcus Smart? You're not going to see both of them on the court in the starting lineup opening night. You're going to see Malcolm Brogdon or Marcus Smart alongside Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Al Horford, and Rob Williams. That's what's going to happen. A lot of people say, well, why don't you just move everyone down and then start um, have Al Horford come off the bench and have JT at the four, JB at the three, and you can have Smart at the two and Malcolm Brogdon at the one. Historically, uh, Tatum does not play very well at the four. He's more of a three guy. If you just look at um, when he plays as the second big, he just doesn't play as well. And he, he just can't work the, the game as well as he can at the three. So I automatically, I think that knocks out that idea. Now, will you see Malcolm Brogdon and Marcus Smart on the court at the same time? Absolutely. I mean, you're, it's bound to happen. That's a fantastic duo to have at your one and two. But will they be playing a ton of um together at the same time I don't think so personally and they certainly won't be starting opening night on the same uh at the same time uh, without a doubt but it begs the question about who you think should be starting at point guard and in my opinion it's pretty clear and I don't even think this trade had anything to do with Marcus Smart what I think happened is that Brad Stevens um, had this uh collection of players that you know he knew he had to get rid of he knew he had to open up some roster spots. He knew he had a lot of like very mediocre talent at the bottom of his roster. And when you're trying to compete and when you came that close to an NBA finals, you know, you should be okay with trading some draft picks to try to win um, in the next season. And so I think he was presented with this offer uh, for, you know, Daniel Tice and the other, the other guys and um, the, the pick. And I think he kind of felt obligated to say, look, we have our, our point guard, Marcus Smart, without a doubt. But to say no to the talent of Malcolm Brogdon because we already have the position filled is ridiculous. It'd be similar to, you know, saying um, if if there was a, uh, you know, let's just say Kevin Durant. I'm not saying Kevin Durant and Malcolm Brogdon are comparable, but for, for the same reasons you would make a move for Kevin Durant if you didn't have to give up much, you can't go and say, well, we already have Jason Tatum. He's already the six six ten guy um, at the three. We don't need Kevin Durant. You know, you take talent over need at that point. And so I think that's what happened with Brad Stevens, who's presented with that offer. And, you know, you just can't say no to that steal of a deal. And um, so I think that the narrative kind of immediately went to, well, they made the trade because either Marcus Smart needs to get uh, – or not that either, it's that Marcus Smart needed to get moved out of the starting lineup because they don't think that they can win with Smart as the point guard. I don't think that's true at all. I mean, if you if you want to look back at the season, you know, we made it to game six of the NBA Finals. We were, um, you know, a couple quarters away from winning it, honestly, with some of the mistakes we made in games one, and one, two, and three. Um, and, you know, 
that's where I'm standing with this. I think if anything, it just alleviates some of the pressure off smart. I hope he takes this to think to, 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 um, heart and thinks, look, I am the defensive, um, prowess that this team needs. He's a defensive player of the year. He will be in contention next season without a doubt. Uh, he's the first card since Gary Payton to win it. We all know this. I hope he takes this into consideration and realizes that Malcolm Brogdon can be the offensive guy, even though Brogdon's no slouch on defense without a doubt. Um, Malcolm Brogdon has you know better shooting splits on the outside. Uh, overall, he's a better offensive player than Marcus Smart, in my opinion. I think it alleviates the pressure off Smart. He doesn't have to be um, any, any sort of spark on the offensive end. You're going to have a lot of offensive talent around you uh, come next season. And um, I think Smart proved last season that he's able to be the starting guy, uh, the starting guard on this on this team and take them throughout the playoffs and be, uh, you know, extremely important in some of these playoff wins. If you look back at the games we played in the 2022 um, NBA Finals run, you know, th- there were so many moments where Marcus Smart was the guy to get us through that game. And so to point out and to, to point out his, you know, miscues and, you know, him shooting us out of games, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. He needs to work on it. But I think the questioning of Marcus Smart's ability to start on a uh, championship caliber team is ridiculous, especially after the run you just saw. Malcolm Brogdon is going to come in and help this team out tremendously. I don't think there's going to be any, um, you know, back and forth between them about uh, who who the starting point guard needs to be, who is the better point guard. Yes, Malcolm Brogdon has had some issues with coaches in the past, but Emi Odoka has proven in the past that he's not going to take any crap from anyone. Um, you know, if Brogdon and Smart push everything to the side, they're going to be fantastic together. They're going to be a great tandem. You're going to have a, de- a defensive um, defensive prowess all over the court. Uh, at all times with the addition of Brockton. So, you know, that's where kind of where I stand with who's going to start opening day. I think it's pretty clear it's going to be Marcus Smart. You're going to have Brockton as that six man. Will they play, you know, somewhat equal minutes? I'm sure. But, you know, you still need Marcus Smart in the starting lineup. There's no reason to mess with it. He came one 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 away last year. And, um, you know, that's just they, I'll leave it at that. We'll do a quick hit on this. I really didn't want to bring this up again, but of course, uh, hours before I'm um, recording this, um, another Shams, uh, or I should say another report that counters Shams original report about Kevin Durant and Jalen Brown and that whole saga that's going on has to come out, um, from the globe. Um, there was a report that there were no real talks of substance between the Celtics and the Nets and that, um, there was never any real, discussions that went on and that nothing was going to be imminent nothing was ever considered to be imminent um and so that kind of counters shams uh first report that jalen brown was offered up by the celtics to the nets and i don't really think both of these can be true um when you when you're talking about no real talks of substance i mean if the celtics offered up their second best player that's that's you know those those are substantive talks you know that's it's as simple as that um so it really can't be, it has to be either one. Uh, now you lean uh, Shams because he's just got that historic track of being right all the time and his reporting is fantastic. Um, but I forgot who it was from the Globe. I I will certainly, I'm, I certainly uh, attested who it was uh, in our post that we, that we had about him. But um, the Globe is also, you know, a fairly reliable source when it comes to 
um, Boston News. So it's it's interesting to see the the different reports coming out. It seems like really people aren't clear about where um, the Celtics and the Nets were ever on talks. I think at this point, um, the talks are done. Uh, I know I said this a couple weeks ago, and then of course the the everything started getting going again. And it seems like every time we make a podcast about it, we make a segment about it. Uh, the next day, there's the talks arisen again. But you know, I don't really think um, you know talks at this point are going to go anywhere. I think it seems more and more likely, just from the reports coming out, just from like what we're reading from uh, Celtics uh, media and stuff like that that this Brown offer was created by the Nets. I think they made this offer up uh, to, to raise the price of KD. Um, uh, I believe it was Brian Windhorst of ESPN who mentioned that uh, the Nets thought this was going to be a bidding war. They thought they were going to have to decline really good deals. And um, we're going to get, you know, people teams were going to overpay for one of the greatest shooters ever, one of the greatest players ever. And frankly, that didn't happen. And so now the Nets are kind of scrambling. Now you've got KD requesting... Uh, to either have Steve Nash fired or he's going to um, or either trade me or have Steve Nash fired. It's kind of like that, um, you know, the split road that he's putting the GM on. Uh, and you're, you know, if you're the GM of the Nets, you're kind of scrambling at this point. You have to get Katie off the team or you have to fire your head coach. If you keep them together, it's going to be a mess of a start, especially with Kyrie Irving into that. You, you know, it's almost like you're just mixing the worst possible um players and attitudes together. Steve Nash doesn't seem like nobody, nobody's doing as an NBA coach. Uh, Kevin Durant is a huge ego. Kyrie Irving is, you know, everything under the sun. It's just, um, I do not uh, envy Nets fans at this point, but as a Celtics fan, I'm glad to see that I, that Jalen Brown is going to be staying with us. Um, I did not have that feeling a couple weeks ago. I was, I was definitely panicking a bit when I first heard that report about Kevin Durant and Jalen Brown uh, in the trade that, uh, that was submitted. Um, but now at this point, I lean towards uh, it being kind of uh, a facade by the uh, by the Nets to try to raise the price of KD. That's probably the last thing we're uh, the last segment we're going to have on this, unless something big happens. And of course, now that we recorded this tomorrow, you're going to see a huge bombshell report from Woj or something or whatever it may be. But um, I, I think talks are done. I think this is it. Uh, I don't think we'll see Kevin Durant, um, frankly, in another uniform come the start of next season. I think he's going to stay in net. I think. Uh, either they're going to work it out with Steve Nash or Nash isn't going to have a job. I don't see how you're going to be able to trade KD for anything less than Jalen Brown. And um, I don't think they've gotten anywhere close to that personally. An extremely interesting uh, piece of information came out this past week when Jason Tatum sat down with Bleacher Reports' Taylor Rooks um, on uh, Bleacher Reports' podcast um, he revealed that he played two months of last season in, into the end of the season, into the uh, playoffs with a wrist fracture. He said, uh, he went on to say, quote, it was small, but it was a, a still a non-displaced chip. So like I chipped a bone, but it didn't leave the surface, end quote. And uh, he continued and said, quote, but it had shown that the bone had grew over it. So it healed but I was still in pain because I kept getting hit or falling on it. So I guess I played with somewhat of a fracture for like two months, end quote. Um, the first thing I thought of when this um, came out was the dunk he had. I don't know if it was in game five. I believe it was in game five. Or no, it, could, it had to have been in Milwaukee. So maybe game four. The dunk he had where he kind of dunked on Giannis and then he went down holding his wrist. And I thought, oh God, here we go. Um, he must have re-aggravated it there. So that's crazy to think about that in the second round of the playoffs, he seems to re-aggravate that injury. Um, 
you know, I kind of, I think a lot of Celtics fans suspected something because you just don't see a player of that caliber go from like unstoppable play, even um, through the first round and a half, even looking at his game six performance in Milwaukee. I mean, that was, you know, Michael Jordan, Kobe-esque, just going into the, you know, the their house and being able to turn that and bring it back home to game seven. Just an insane display. And then you flash forward to the NBA finals and he looked like a shell of himself. And everyone questioned what what happened? What is wrong? Is it it's either A, what we know now is there was a prior injury that was hindering him, or B, he's kind of collapsing in in the big moments. And you know, I really wanted it to be the former and I really wanted it to be just a lingering injury. Not that I wanted Tatum to be injured, obviously, but I wanted there to be, you know, a reason, um, a valid reason, a physical reason why he wasn't performing as well as we had expected. And this seems to kind of, um, uh, you know, back that up. He also mentioned that he did was he did wear a brace for most of those two months and that he just didn't wear it around the media. So no one knew about it. And to me, that's crazy that he was able to wear a brace on his wrist and he was never confronted about it. You never heard any reports about Tatum seen in a brace or, you know, Tatum walk around Boston with a brace on. Like, I wonder when he really wore it because, he you know, he's always in the cameras when he's in Boston, especially in this deep playoff run. Um, the fact that it was never caught that he was wearing a brace is crazy. Props to Tatum, props to the Celtics organization for keeping that hidden. Um, and uh, he, he also mentioned that he said uh, he didn't want to mention anything in media because he said, quote, if I'm going to play, nothing matters. And I think that's a really, you know, solid attitude to have uh, at his age. You know, he's a young, still a young player, and he's got that attitude of like, I'm not going to make excuses about injuries and a lot of people have issues with that um it, ha- it occurs in baseball a lot when a pitcher doesn't play well um he'll always turn to an injury excuse and you know that does piss a lot of fans off because it's like well if you're out there pitching you should be good enough to play at at um a level that gives us a chance to win and so i think tatum kind of took that into consideration and said i'm not going to say anything i'm just going to play you know granted it um you know he didn't really helped the team in the NBA finals. Um, but throughout the playoffs, he was playing with this injury and he was key into getting us there, obviously. So it was really interesting to hear. It was kind of out of the blue. He kind of just mentioned it on the podcast. He never, I'm not sure if he ever had the, um, desire to reveal the information and he kind of just questioned about it. And, and you know, that's when it came out, but, uh, it was really out of the blue, but it was, you know, it was not good to hear that he was hurt, but, it was relieving to hear, I guess would be the word, uh, the fact that Tatum didn't perform too well in the NBA Finals. It's good to hear that there was a valid reason for it and that he should be back to full form come um, uh, the next playoffs. Uh, so that's it for the Celtics this week. Uh, we're going to finish this episode up with a little bit of Red Sox talk. Um, they're, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll get back to the Red Sox after this quick break. Uh, the Red Sox roller coaster season uh, is continuing. It's even tough to make a weekly podcast about them because on one week they might be looking like, oh, we've won three in a row. Maybe we're going to climb out of this hole and then they'll lose three in a row and it's right back to where we started. Um, they, since we had our last podcast, they've um, been up and down yet again. There hasn't been a true streak that they've been able to hold. The best I can point to is that that, uh, that three-game series against the Yankees um, last weekend, um, they took two out of three and they had the ability to sweep. 
um, and they you know ended up dropping that middle game, which was not great. But taking two out of three against the Yankees, even with where the Yankees are playing right now, it was a huge win. And um, even with where the Red Sox are sitting, those games at Fenway against the Yankees still hold so much energy, and it can boost your morale and boost your team so much to take two out of three out of, out of your rival. And so not only that, you were heading in to Pittsburgh to play the Pirates, the abysmal Pirates, who um, just don't hold have any players right now other than Brian Reynolds and O'Neill Cruz of like significant value. They're rolling out like very minimal talent each night. Um, and you're able to take those first two. So now you've uh, you've got you've won two out of three against the Yankees. You've won two in a row against the Pirates. You're looking good. Um, you've got one more against the Pirates, and then it's uh, to Baltimore for a key series against the Orioles. And then you drop the last game against the Pirates. No, not a one nothing game, not a 2 nothing game. You allow eight runs um, to one of the worst teams in the league. And then you head into Baltimore and drop two out of three there, dropping the first game 15-10. to 10. That was a horrific game to watch. Um, you guys probably saw our post about it. Just uh, sickening performance, getting back into the game within one run, and then Brazier comes in and just the game just spills over. Uh, you're able to steal the middle game, and then in Williamsport at the Little League uh, Classic, you drop that game as well with, again, a lot of opportunity to win the game. Uh, John Schreiber, who has been you know, the MVP along with Whitlock of the bullpen, uh, can't really pull us out of everything, and he kind of collapsed last night. And, um, you know, yes, he was the reason we lost because he did, you know, blow the lead. But again, you have so many opportunities to win these games. You can't just keep relying on the same guys every single night to pull you out of trouble. And it's exactly what they're doing. So at this point, I believe we're six out. It fluctuates so much. Six out of the wild card, I should say. Um, it's all over the place on any given day. Um, the, the biggest stretch of the season is coming up. And I know we keep saying that, and I probably keep saying that on every episode, but You've got a three-game against the Blue Jays at home. You've got a three-game against the Rays at home. And then you go on the road in a three-game against the Twins. All of those teams are above you in the wild card. You can gain all of the, uh, all uh, games on all of them in the next, it uh, looks like it's about um, nine days or so. So you've got about nine games in nine days, give or take. Um, you can make a ton of ground up in this time. Look, if we win seven out of nine, uh, the you're going into September with a real shot at making the wild card. If you go 500, I'll be the first to say I think the season at that point is probably over because you're gonna be not. You're pretty much not gonna be able to gain on any of them because you're probably gonna drop two out of three to the Rays, two out of three to the Blue Jays, and then you maybe you take two out of three against the Twins. That can't happen. You have to win all of these series for one. Um, if you can take two out of three of each series, there you go. I'd like a sweep in there. I'd like us to win nine in a row. Obviously, I don't think it's going to happen, but there is opportunity here for the Red Sox to get back on track. The biggest thing is J.D. Martinez, Raphael Devers, and Xander Bogarts have to hit the ball. They've been absolutely abysmal in the month of August. It's It sucks to watch because the team has actually stayed afloat since the uh, trade deadline. And if these players, these three guys that we expect to be uh, great players, two of them on contract years, technically Bogart's on a contract year, um, Devers just um, a year until his is up, are just, they can't hit the ball. And Daniel Bogart's is, is pointing to some injury that he had that he thinks is the reasoning why now he can't get his mechanics back. You know what? I'm sorry, but 
you should still be able to hit the ball no matter what injury uh, you think is lingering. You should be able to hit a baseball. Now, we did have a home run uh, in that third game against the Orioles, but it's just like 10th of the season. And if you look at J.D. Martinez and Bogart's number from last year to this year, it's not even comparable. So, you know, you want to point to the reasons why this team is not performing well. Uh, you know, the bottom of the lineup is hitting actually fairly well. Reese McGuire has been a really good addition. Eric Hosmer um, is hitting the ball hard. He's just not hitting it, hitting it to where they aren't. Uh, Tommy Pham, you know, you guys know, has been a great addition. We, we've posted about him a lot on our page. But it's got to be the middle of the order. It's got to be the three main guys in that lineup. Um, if they don't start hitting, you know, you're not going to be able to you know, get out of this hole you dug yourself in. Uh, look, it's a middle, it's the, the mid to late August uh, time of the year. You still got about a month and a half or so, month and a week uh, to pull yourself out of this hole. You can do it. You've got a lot of games against a lot of the teams in front of you. Without a doubt, it's possible. There's a home six game homestand coming up right here. Um, if this team has any fight, uh, if this team has any, um, uh, you know, bark in them, I guess you could say, uh, they're going to you know, come out of here and come out of the homestand having won five out of six. But I think they just as easily could lose um, five out of six and eliminate themselves from playoff contention. We're just going to have to wait and see. Uh, they kick off the series against the Blue Jays um, at 7-10 on Tuesday, the 23rd. That'll be a great series to watch, and hopefully they come out of that uh, on top. That'll do it for us uh, for episode four of Title Talk. Thank you guys so much for watching uh, or listening, I should say. Um, speaking of watching, we're going to start getting more content up on the YouTube channel. We're trying to figure out some video stuff. I want to get the higher quality videos up for you guys. I don't want to be uploading um, crappy quality, so I'm trying to figure all that out before I start uploading consistently on there. But we're going to do um, a lot of videos just about discussions around different, you know, the Boston sports you know, separate from the podcast and we'll be uploading our podcast clips as well. Um, and we'll, hopefully we'll get some more interaction with you guys. Maybe we can figure some stuff out to do on the YouTube channel, but uh, definitely subscribe to that. That's title talk on YouTube. Um, if you're listening on Apple music, you're listening on Spotify, listening wherever. Thank you so much for listening. If you made it all the way to the end, uh, this has been Jordan Haddock with title talk and I will see you guys next week. She said, I think I'm going to Boston.